Ever been to Pleasure Island? Uh-uh. But Mr. Honest John gave me... Me neither. But they say it's a swell joint. No school, no cops. You can tear the joint apart. And nobody says a word. Honest John gave me... Loaf around, plenty to eat, plenty to drink. And it's all free. Honest John? Boy, that's the place. The second star to the right and straight on till morning. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Mouse Madness, a podcast dedicated to bracketing all things Disney. I'm Chris Bowersox. And I'm Kyle Skinner. And we are your hosts for Mouse Madness. Each episode will focus on a single Disney topic, generate a bracket, and debate our way through the madness to figure out who or what is truly the best. Follow us and play along on Instagram at Mouse Madness Pod. Send us an email at mousemadnesspodcast at gmail.com. Or support us on Patreon by becoming a member of Jerry's gang at patreon.com slash mouse madness. Chris, it was a wonderful time heading over to the East Coast and talking a little bit about the Magic Kingdom attractions. Mm. Uh, we I, I love doing the parks brackets because even though it's just it's a ride, it's one attraction. There's so much we can say about them. And we only visited the one park on the East Coast. I can't wait to go back and do the other three another time. We didn't talk Animal Kingdom. We didn't talk Hollywood Studios. And we didn't talk our favorite park to visit when we were down there, which is Epcot. Right. And uh, I'm really looking forward to talking about that one one day. Epcot is sort of like a, I'm a I almost might call it like a living piece of art. You know, it was Walt <laughs> Disney's like last greatest art project was sure. uh, bringing that to the world. Yeah. Um, and speaking of art, and art as a place, we're talking best animated Disney setting today. This is a bracket idea that I have had for a long, 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 long time. Like it was probably <laughs> yep. in my short list of like my original like five ideas when we started <laughs> this podcast now almost five years ago. Um, and I just never really thought it had uh, kind of the the bracket, you know, it, it didn't sure. have the seeds to kind of round. But uh after looking at these 16 seeds, I, I think we got a pretty deep field. Uh, so much so that um, we're only talking about Disney animated here. Yeah. We're not talking about Pixar. We're nope. not talking about Star Wars planets or Marvel cities or anything like that. We are just sticking to best Disney animated setting, and I'm really looking forward to get into it. And to join us, we have one of our Disney vets. We got Marissa. Marissa, thank you for joining us once again. Thank you guys for having me. I'm really excited to be back. So speaking of settings, uh, you visited quite a few of them recently. And when you went on a trip with your uh, travel planning company, I believe it was, and you hit every single domestic park, Disney park in a single day. Talk to me about one, how and why. And two, when you got to the finish line, what was that final park and how did you feel? So I will say I didn't do it in 24 hours. I did it in a weekend. So it might as well be a day. <laughs> it might, it, honestly, it felt like a full day at that point. But 
It was so much fun. Um, it was a very last minute decision that I was going to go on this trip. They always have an annual retreat that falls in January. I didn't get to go last year because my honeymoon, but then this year happened. Which was also visiting like every other Everywhere. Disney park, right? Yeah, <laughs> that, that is also true. Like the 2.0 of yeah. that whole thing. But yes, but um. Yeah, I was able to go on this trip and we had a full park day of content and going around to every single park and you could do it however you wanted. You could either go to just one or two or three or all of them. And I'm like, you know what? I have not done an all four park day since 2017. Wow. So it's been a minute. And it was one of the best decisions I ever made going over to the East Coast is doing the all four parks in one day. Because personally for me, like I already have my favorites over there. Sure. So I already have it all planned out. I'm like, okay, this is what I'm going to do in the morning. This is what I'm going to do after that. This is what I'm grabbing to eat. This is what I'm eating. And there's so many just skips for me now over there because I'm like, I can do this at home. Sure. So I was like, we're going to wrap this thing through. And we did it. And then we ended the day with Fantasmic. Ooh. And I was like, that hit so hard because <laughs> I miss our dragon. But that's okay because Fantasmic's coming back. But it was a lot of fun. And then there were last minute reservations that popped up on Sunday, the day <laughs> that I was coming back. And I was like, convenient. <laughs> Let's just go. <laughs> and then my husband was like, okay, where are you going to go? And he picked me up from the Long Beach airport and we drove over to Anaheim and we spent the last couple of hours of our park hours at Disney California Adventure and Disneyland. That's crazy. Love it. That is a whirlwind of a weekend, but a dream one at that. If there's one thing about beauty and the niece is that they're going to activate if they can't get to a park. And I love that about you guys. Uh, we're going to revisit parks at a future episode but right now we got to hop into the animated worlds of disney and before we get to that we got to talk a little spoonful of sugar chris what are you sipping on for this episode so um shout out to my future brother-in-law andy um yep. we were exchanging gifts this christmas and he and i were on the same wavelength i guess uh because <laughs> i put together a like a little California's beer package for him for his Christmas present and he gave me a 12 pack of sour ales for my Christmas present so like uh. it was just a, a beer exchange uh, and the one he gave me is one that I had never had before but it's from Dogfish Head Brewery which is in Milton, Delaware hmm. Um, you ever been to Delaware Kyle? <laughs> I think I may have driven through it one time when I was very young, but not anything to remember. Yeah, I think same. I think same. <laughs> um, but this is a blissfully brewed session sour with lime juice, lime peel, black limes, and sea salt. It's called the Sea Quench Ale. And the okay. art has a little little waves, little little glass with a straw in it. I don't know who drinks beer with a straw. There's a little <laughs> lime in it. And um, I will say of the sour beers that I've tasted, this might be like the least sour. It still <laughs> has that little like hint of lime, but it almost tastes uh, more like 
like a wheat beer. Okay. Maybe. Um, still good. Still very refreshing. Just uh, easy to drink, which is like what I go for when I'm looking for a beer. But uh, but yeah, that's what I'm drinking today. Uh, Kyle, what about you? Yeah, I went ahead and tried to make a cocktail out of some things that I had. And I realized that I didn't have a ton of mixtures. So I went ahead and did some sort of whiskey sour situation. I'm also on the sour train with you today. And so I had a lime, I had some lemons, I had uh, the honey syrup that I used to make my center of the galaxy drink a couple of brackets ago. Uh, so I had the, and I had some whiskey. So I put it all together. I did like an ounce and a half because that's how much juice half of the lemon gave me of lime juice. I did like an ounce of, uh, or, uh, of lemon juice, an ounce of lime juice, an ounce of the honey syrup. And then I did two and a half ounces of whiskey, put it into my little Club 33 glass with a with a ball ice cube, and I stirred it all up. And it's real good. It's real tasty. It is sour. This is something that you probably would like to sip on, Chris, uh, because it does really pack that sour punch and then evens out with the honey sweetness, which is nice. So I'm calling it the, the Cave of Whiskey Wonders for this bracket as the setting for my discussion. Uh, Marissa, what are you sipping on? Um, I went very classic and went to coffee bean and got a hot vanilla because mm-hmm. it is freezing in my house. It'd be cold. It'd be cold. It's freezing. All right, Chris, let's get even closer to those settings. And we needed a demographic to pick them for us. Who did the interns survey? A few months ago. I mean, I don't even know if it was months ago. It might've even been years ago at this point. Um, yeah. Time is blending together for me. But we talked a little bit about um, the idea that is Disney losing the theme park race? And there was an important moment in the apparent theme park race that happened this week. Um, Universal released kind of a long form teaser for their Epic Universe park that they're opening in Orlando. Yeah. Went into a little bit more detail about what kind of experiences will be in store, what some of the theme themed lands are going to be centered around and it was really cool and they even got uh stevie spielberg to come in at the (laughs) end and drop an absolute banger quote basically saying that i'm i love designing for theme parks because it makes me feel things again uh, or something to that extent it was hilarious but um there were tons of folks that saw that little teaser from universal and they said Disney, you're you're blowing it. <laughs> you're, you, you've let Universal come in and just snatch your people up. Uh, and so we took the opportunity to ask some of these Epic Universe Disney comparison hawks. Said, look, I know that you're all about these immersive settings and you think you know everything about it. So tell us, what is the best animated Disney setting of all time? And like I kind of teased at the beginning of the show, we have 16 awesome Disney settings. So what are a few settings, Kyle, that come to mind when you look at this 16 and maybe didn't quite make it, did not make the dance? Yeah. I'll also call out that we didn't go hybrid films. So like Mary Poppins doesn't count. uh, Roger Rabbit doesn't count. So my first one is uh, Lester's Possum Park. From Goofy Movie. Of course it is. Because it is just such a funny random stop on their trip 
Uh, but it makes for one of the most like dramatic scenes of the entire film. It is a place that is supposed to be like family fun. It's the epitome of why Max didn't want to go on this trip is that sort of Chuck E. Cheese environment with his dad. And they kind of really nailed it. So I liked that setting a lot. And then my second one is the elephant graveyard in Lion King because it was so convincingly scary. I remember as a kid being afraid of that scene because the graveyard was so well done and the massive bone structures from the elephants and just the fog, how it rolls in, like it makes for a really scary place that you know these kids shouldn't be in. So I really like that setting as well. Um, Chris, what are a couple for you? I, something I really like about the the draw in this bracket is that there are some settings that are extremely large and some that are a lot smaller, like Lester's yeah. Possum Park would kind of want to be one of those small animated Disney settings, but one really massive one, a world that I loved to be inside is uh, Kumandra, which oh. is the setting of Raya and the Last Dragon, a movie that kind of came and went for a lot of people. But one of my favorite parts about the film was the way that they portrayed the the kingdom, the land of Kumandra. They were very um, intentional about how they uh, drew, animated, um, and created these various kingdoms that uh, that made up the bigger setting. Uh, mm-hmm. So I I like that immersive factor there, um, and then of course. Ivan to Earl, gotta shout him out. E.E. himself. Yeah, uh, the Kingdom and Sleeping Beauty, uh, just a, a film that holds up brilliantly today, hand-drawn, but looks like it could have been made from a computer in the in the 2020s. Like, it's it's brilliant. Check out Waking Sleeping Beauty on Disney+. Plus. It's uh, It was an awesome work of art. Um, love the colors. Love the design itself. Uh, so I had to shout that one out. Marissa, what are a couple of animated Disney settings for you that come to mind? I'm surprised that Kyle didn't take mine because it is from 101 Dalmatians. Just oh, they're flat in London in general. Yeah. One of my favorite places in the world. So that was obviously one that came to my mind. And another one is uh, Machinui from Moana. Yep. Oh, yes. Love, oh, just they're everything about it. I'm like, I would go there tomorrow. 100%. So and just send me there. One-way ticket. Absolutely. And there is one or two settings on here that are maybe not as technologically impressive as Mata Nui and, and the vast ocean that makes up uh, the, the movie Moana, but um, similar vibes. Yeah. Uh, so, so let's get into it. Let's talk about our 16-seated best Disney animated settings. Let's cue the dramatic music and let's announce them. Coming in at number one, painting the roses red is Wonderland from Alice in Wonderland. Located at the North Star and a little bit to the right is the number two seed. It's Neverland from Peter Pan. Out of the unknown and into the three spot is Arendelle from Frozen. Turning up at the four seed is Pleasure Island from Pinocchio. Racing against the clock. And coming in at number five is Beast's Castle from Beauty and the Beast. Taking turns at the six seed is Sugar Rush from Wreck-It Ralph. Trying anything at number seven is Zootopia from Zootopia. 
Looking over everything the light touches at the number eight seed is Pride Rock from the Lion King. Taking it real easy at number nine is New Orleans from Princess and the Frog. Taking cover from Little Raindrops at the 10 seed is The Forest from Bambi. Welcome to the family. Coming in at number 11 is Casa Madrigal from Encanto. Located in a tree trunk at the number 12 seed is Halloween Town from The Nightmare Before Christmas. Like a diamond in the rough. Coming in at number 13 is The Cave of Wonders from Aladdin. Looking real regal at the number 14 seed is Corona from Tangle. All is found at number 15, it's Atahalan from Frozen 2. And whistling its way into the 16 seed is Sherwood Forest from Robin Hood. Marissa, 16 great Disney animated settings. Uh, the matchups look pretty close. Is there any that you are looking forward to breaking down a little bit here? There are some that I am going to be heartbroken if I'm going to have to pick one over the other. But um, definitely a favorite bracket of mine is Arendelle versus Corona. That's definitely one that I'm looking forward to seeing your guys' opinions on it. Yeah, a lot of these have similar vibes to them. And so when they do meet in matchups, it's going to be fun to talk about them. So let's let's jump right into it here with the 116 seed. It's Wonderland taking on Sherwood Forest. And Sherwood Forest and Robin Hood is a really quaint place, it feels like. It, it is both intimate, but also somewhat mysterious. Somehow, uh, Robin Hood is always around, but he's never found, right? He is always on the outskirts. He's always in the forest that butts up to Nottingham that butts up to uh, the rest of the village. And so the ability to have this forest setting uh, is always fun in these Disney films because it is a source of protection for our animal characters. And that's generally where we see them in. Um, gorgeously designed, obviously, in the 60s and 70s, you really get kind of the the after Walt eras of the animators where they're on they're they're towards the end of their craft, but they're still putting that really nice watercolor Disney touch into the backgrounds. This these backgrounds and these settings were done by two animators. In fact, it was somebody named Bill Lane, three people, Bill Lane, Ralph Hewlett, and Ann Gunther. Uh, so they did the backgrounds, not as well known as some of the other folks that did it, but they really emulate that feeling of the lushness of the forest. Um, there's obviously a lot of paths through the forest that either maybe Robin Hood and his his gang have made. Uh, maybe it's just what the the villagers use to travel through. But there's a lot of mystery to the setting, and it makes for a really like fun adventure film that Robin Hood really tries to portray throughout that movie. When we're talking settings, though, and you're up against something like Wonderland, talk about like a Disney setting. Uh, this is a place in which anything can happen and the unexpected will happen. And it is a place in which the animators and the storytellers can really flex on us. They can really go the distance. They can tell a, tell a, a wacky story and have it all make sense. Logic does not need to exist here. And it is so well done that we buy into it. We're not questioning why things are happening. It's just it's just Wonderland. And that's a fun escapism note from the story is that we can sit in the theater and go into Wonderland with Alice and be away from our own kind of boring lives, just like Alice is daydreaming up. Or did she actually go to Wonderland? Who knows? <laughs> um, 
there's a ton of elements. It's a vast place that doesn't necessarily have a map, um, but it also feels very contained because everyone commingles there. Uh, you have Tweedledee and Tweedledum who know the carpenter and the walrus, at least the story. You have the the white rabbit who is seemingly being able to travel on foot from place to place somewhat easily, uh, but you don't quite know how. For heaven's sake, Alice fell down a tree trunk into this place. Who knows how these portals work? And that's what makes the setting so exciting. I think this is a very quintessential Disney setting. I'm going to go with the one over 16 here. Something that I really like about Sherwood Forest and something I like about a lot of these um, settings that we're talking about today is that it does a good job presenting the political climate of, of the setting, right? Oh, yes. The whole movie is really about framing the situation in which Robin Hood is functioning. How, how do we present this guy who is objectively a thief? How do we present him as a good guy? And so part of the importance of Sherwood Forest as a place is um, it, it has to win the audience over as like, this is the, this is the correct way to be. This is the right way to be um, being defiant, being, um, you know, in Unruly, the shadows. Unkept. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's kind of like what the forest represents to me. And um, I think there's, there is another forest that we're going to be talking about here on this bracket, but something that I think, all forests, fictional and real, one of the trademark features is that you don't know what's behind the next tree. Sure. Uh, and so something that I think is cool about Robin Hood is that there are all of these sort of little scenes that happen throughout the movie, but they are, they are all sort of held together by the forest. You don't really know what's going to be through the clearing, but the thing that you do know is your boy Robin Hood's going to be ready for anything. Yeah. Do I need to throw on a little disguise? Hmm. I got that. <laughs> do I need to win an archery contest? Boom. Got that. Do I need to merc uh, Prince John? Got that too. Right. Uh, and so I just, I, I think it's a really um, atmospheric, moody place. Robin Hood in general is just kind of like a moody movie in a way. It's, that a, no it's a vibe other, movie. Yeah. In a way that no other Disney movie really is. You know, it's got that little folkiness uh, that a lot of these, you know, feel a little bit more magical. Uh, so, so I really appreciate that about Sherwood Forest, but, but I definitely agree with you in moving Wonderland along here. The movie's called Alice in Wonderland. It's not <laughs> called, better, not called Alice go goes on an adventure or Alice versus the queen. It's just, she's just in Wonderland. Don't worry about what happens next. She's just there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I've. I've said a lot of times on this podcast that I don't love Alice in Wonderland, the movie. I gave it a shot again a couple of days ago um, because what happens sometimes is I will not like a movie on the whole and then I'll revisit it to focus in on one part and then I will enjoy it in like a different way. Good yeah. example is like Star Wars Episode Two. If you watch it, <laughs> if you watch it for the Anakin crybaby parts, is actually a very entertaining movie. Uh, so I went into Wonderland, like I, I'm really ready to be in the state of mind that you're talking about, Kyle. Where I just want to escape, just want to put the world aside, and just I just want to be there. I want to be Wonderland, and uh, I'm really, really happy to report back that it did not work at all. <laughs> uh, I still hate Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> I absolutely cannot stand it. And I think, I think I, I finally did the mental 
work to figure out why I don't like it. Uh-huh. And we can talk about it in, oh. in the next episode. Cause part of it has to do with the, the importance of place over anything else in, in Alice in Wonderland. But sure. But I'm with you moving it on in the first round matchup here. Marissa, do you agree with us sending Sherwood Forest home here? Yeah, it's unfortunate that the Forest had to go home, but I I would just have a hard time passing it on over Wonderland. It's just, it's a great setting for Disney. So I agree. All right, so the next matchup is is an 8-9 matchup. It's 8 Pride Rock from the Lion King versus 9 New Orleans from... The Princess and the Frog. Wow. What's interesting is both of these movies put a lot of importance in establishing this setting at the very beginning. Yes. Lion King opens with Circle of Life, which which it's it's a double attack. Uh, you're you're setting up the theme of like we're all here kind of, you know, doing our own thing and we all have our roles to play in life, but it's also showcasing visually uh, the setting that that theme is going to be explored. The movie takes place like generally amongst the entire Pride Lands, but we are talking about Pride Rock specifically yes. here. Uh, Kyle, you and I are cat owners, and yeah. you know what a cat always wants to do. They got to be up high. They got to get into the absolute highest place <laughs> possible. My cat's out here yesterday throwing picture frames on me while I'm on <laughs> Zoom calls. Oh, no. She literally fell. She literally fell onto me um, <laughs> when she was trying to climb up to a place she couldn't quite reach. <laughs> Put uh, the scar it, brother it, audio under that. <laughs> yeah. It just happens to, to cats. And so Pride Rock is that place for our Simba, Mufasa, Nala family. Yeah. It's the the high point in the Pride Lands that you can see out onto everything. So it's the it's the seat. It's the seat of the Pride Lands. It's where the person who's in charge of the situation is going to be. Uh, and those people are Mufasa and uh, eventually Simba. And it is contested by Scar. So yeah. much like Sherwood Forest, there is a political climate that sort of swirls around uh, Pride Rock, the place being something that it's the high ground. Don't do it, Anakin. I have the high ground. <laughs> uh, it's the high ground of of Lion King. It's where everyone wants to be. New Orleans, <sighs> down in New Orleans, Doctor John. Yeah, I mean, banger. you want to talk about creating a vibe, an atmosphere. That goes hand in hand with the setting. I mean, this this scene does such a good job doing that. Mm-hmm. And I had been to New Orleans once before your bachelor party, but it was my second time down in New Orleans when we went down there. Yeah, for Skinner's batch batch party, and the whole Big Easy thing didn't really hit me until until that time. <laughs> yeah, and we were in that Wendy's, and we <laughs> and we all ordered a spicy chicken nuggets. And it took about 35 minutes. <laughs> yeah. And it was one of those things where I was like, you know what? This is New Orleans. This is this why is they call the it the Big Easy. You know, like, and it's not like so easy being the California person to be like, hurry the up. I want my chicken nuggies so mm-hmm. bad. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but you got, you're, you're on someone else's house now. So totally. Um, so it's real. You know, this whole like New Orleans, the big easy thing. It's real. It came to life in the Wendy's that day for me. <laughs> uh, but you, as far, you found the big easy in the Wendy's that night. But as far as uh, 
the portrayal of New Orleans in um, Princess and the Frog. Really interesting how they lay on like the classism in New Orleans in that movie and in part of Tiana's whole um, character growth is is moving from her parents' house, which is in sort of on the poorer side of town, helping out the, uh, what's the daughter's name again? Uh, Big Daddy's oh. daughter. Yeah, Big Daddy's Big daughter. daughter. <laughs> Small daughter. Uh, <laughs> you know, and, and that idea that like, you know, rich people, poor people, everyone is sort of like meets at the intersection uh, in New Orleans and you never know what's going to happen. You never know who anyone really is because, uh, I mean, it's like very similar to Pride Rock thematically in that way. Sure, yeah. I mean, I think in this matchup, I'm going to go with New Orleans because I think that Pride Rock is an important part of the story of The Lion King, but it I don't think it is used frequently enough. It's sort of like the bookend, um, and it's almost like the MacGuffin of The Lion King. Mm-hmm. It's what everyone's mm-hmm. trying to get. Uh, mm-hmm. Whereas New Orleans and obviously like they head down to the bayou and it's a whole other thing. But um, the idea of New Orleans is is alive throughout Pr- Princess and the Frog and Tiana's journey. So I'll go with the nine seed. I think I, I'm going to definitely do the same. And it's because you can tell I think the Lion King can happen in that general area and major events will take place in different subsettings. So like. What if the big battle at the end, Mufasa throws Scar off the same cliff that, or sorry, Simba throws Scar off the same cliff that Scar threw Mufasa off, right? Like that could still have the same impact as him doing it off of Pride Rock. I get that it's also him reclaiming this thing that quite literally looks like the throne and is the throne, but the story doesn't revolve around like capturing Pride Rock. I don't think that you have an American story of princess and the frog if it doesn't take place in new orleans yeah because new orleans is a place of already established magic already established like unexplained occurrences already established mixing of of cultures as you said chris and it's always the launching place for an for an adventure it's a port city so either you're coming in and you're having an adventure or you're going out on an adventure and so i don't think that you have this film set in America, anywhere else with this magical sort of uh, themes that it does like outside of New Orleans. It has to be New Orleans. So I'm going to I'm gonna agree with you because I think it's so important to the film. And, it, and they do it really well. They do it justice, I think. Uh, so much so that they get New Orleans native Dr. John to sing the intro to it. Like that is the sign of approval if there is one. Marissa, would you have gone the 90s bias of the Lion King? Or are you with us here on the New Orleans train? No, I'm with you guys on the New Orleans train. Um, I just think that Pride Rock doesn't have as much of an emphasis on the movie than New Orleans does for Princess and the Frog. So I definitely agree with you guys of moving New Orleans on. All right. Next matchup, it's the number four seed Pleasure Island out of Pinocchio. And that's going to be taking on the Cave of Wonders from Aladdin there at the number 13 seed. Uh, This is a really interesting matchup because it is... Again, two little subsettings in the general pot of the films, but they're they're very important subsettings. <laughs> like Cave of Wonders, we all know it. You, it's a very big moment in Aladdin. It's one that we see at the very beginning of the film, and then we come visit again with Aladdin. 
Cave of Wonders is this mystical place that appears as a massive tiger head. Uh, And the worthy ones are able to enter and they got to get their stuff and get out or else they're going to be swallowed up. And so the fact that like the, the guard of this cave is the cave itself is really cool because it then doesn't put the onus on the people. Like this is a, a naturally occurring place. This is a cave and it is protecting what is its, which is this treasure that it, it contains and only the worthy can come in. Adding magic to these Disney films I think is always an important element. It's not always that it needs to be realistic, but you can find some realism in it. And so to have this cave that has the treasures is some sort of trope that we all recognize as a movie trope, uh, but then put a little magic towards it and you've kind of Disneyfied it. It's also beautifully done. I mean, the treasure looks great. Uh, this The animation, I always forget how much I actually like Aladdin's animation, like that kind of early 90s aesthetic where they were really playing around with the computer animation but still relying heavily on the hand this feels like a really nice part of like a nice place that they've rested here the movie sucks and i don't (laughs) like aladdin but i love the art of aladdin so I, i i do like cave of wonders uh pleasure island man pleasure island is such a perfect setting to have this heinous act because one this this kind of carnival place is already in our real world perceived as kind of like grody and a little bit sinister and a little bit dangerous, but it's aimed at family fun. It's supposed to be innocent. It's supposed to be a place that kids can go and trust to get on these innocent rides like Ferris wheels. And so to have these kids be convinced to go to Pleasure Island where it is this perceived sp- safe space away from adults, away from uh, any rules in a place that they recognize as fun is a great place to enact a heinous act. And it's just, it just feels super smart. And obviously this isn't like a Disney component. These are all kind of stories that they've taken and built on, but the way that they've made the setting look, you're convinced that only good times are happening here because the kids are going absolutely berserk. Yeah. Also the entire time, This is like one of my favorite scenes probably in Disney animation because as they kind of pan across the setting, you have kids that are like jumping from Ferris wheel car to Ferris wheel (laughs) car. You got kids that are falling out of roller coaster cars. Like it is just absolute chaos. And it is such a where's Waldo sort of setting to pick out something new every time that you watch the film. It really makes you convinced that this is a place that kids would feel comfortable and so they would get duped and they would get tricked into becoming uh victims of child trafficking at a pleasure island type of place which is kind of the stigma that is over carnivals in the first place kids are gonna get swooped from there you know so it is this grounded place in reality a point of reference that we can all understand and we can also understand why it would be so appealing for kids to fall for that trick it's just a super great setting I'm actually going to go with Pleasure Island over uh, Cave of Wonders here. So I really like Pleasure Island because obviously Pinocchio is a a parable. It's like, and it's also a cautionary tale. So Pleasure Island, the way it's portrayed in the movie is great. Mentally, it's a place that like any, anyone who's watching the movie they probably have their own version of Pleasure Island in their oh, head, right? Yeah, like, yeah. because it's really just um, placeholder for the idea that 
um, too much of any good thing is a bad thing. Right. Uh, and so I- I'm trying to think about like what my pleasure Island would have on it. Ooh. Like, uh, I was thinking like, I really love, um, a lot of comforters on my bed. Um, (laughs) and I also love extra cheese on any of my pizzas. So like, what if I had like a cheese blanket, uh, room and, and I could just like eat my own blankets. Like while I was sleeping, it was just made of the gooeyest, tastiest mozzarella cheese, um, and then, and then like, you know, they better have some good bathrooms at Pleasure Island because <laughs> mine would be in the same sort of like food realm, but it'd be like bordering on the line of too spicy. I love spice mm. food, love spicy food, but I always teeter on if it's, if it gets too hot, then I, I, I die. And so I would exist in that realm of like, playing with these these spicy foods and it is fun because it's so tasty and it hurts a little bit but sometimes you can overindulge and it'll really really hurt i think my pleasure island is just being existing in a realm of of really spicy food and and there's a scorpion bowl water fountains uh, right of course yeah and then there's rum pouring everywhere marissa what would be (laughs) um obviously have to have tacos and sushi for sure those are like my absolute two favorite foods of all time also coffee neat like that is an absolute necessary mm-hmm. and then obviously water because you know hydration is key well there's no water at pleasure island you either you're just gonna <laughs> exist until you wither away and no, I, I, need to, I need to hydrate after the, all the coffee jitter <laughs> there's like a, a latte lazy river uh <laughs> yeah. and it's just you're just floating through um all of the coffee and just drinking it as you're yeah um, Exactly. It's like a coffee water park. Yeah. Yeah. I really love this scene, you know, because it has that little dose of like irony and cheek to it that makes a grown up viewer say this is absurd and funny at the same time. Cave of Wonders. This is one where I think I'm going to give it the pass because of that animation mm. that you're talking about, Kyle. Um, it rarely hits, but something about the the color, the dark blues and purples and blacks of the desert night with that orangish red glowing eyes and glowing mouth of the Cave of Wonders is just astounding. And And I really love sort of the fantasy element of it that like, beneath the vast desert there's this like deep underground cave that has all of the lost treasures of the world it's just it's just one of those like very specific ideas that is developed in a way that is so it crystallizes the idea so well that makes it feel real um and i really like that and like i said pleasure islands maybe a little bit too nebulous of a mm. of a concept for me even though it's per, it's portrayed in a really fun way uh, in this movie i would love to see it modernized a little bit you know mm, yeah. like well we got one <laughs> <laughs> yeah and it, guess what it was stupid <laughs> um so i'm going to go with aladdin i'm going to actually go with the upset here and move the 13 seed on marissa you're breaking your first tie it's funny because like looking back at I was going through like all the episodes I'd been on and this this particular number of 13 always haunts the brackets that I'm on. <laughs> I don't know if you guys have noticed that, but it's always 
13 every <laughs> single time. And I'm like, oh gosh, here we go again. <laughs> but I am going to continue the streak of this 13. When I was younger, I would literally only watch Aladdin because of the Cave of Wonders. Wow. Because I would be like, I I want to go in. <laughs> but why does he get to go in? Why why is no one else going in there? And I just always found it so fascinating of the animation, the colors that you guys were talking about, just everything about the Cave of Wonders to me just always lured me back into watching Aladdin. But yeah. All right. The upset. Cave Ooh. of Wonders moves on. All right. Last matchup on the left side of the bracket here. We've got the number five seed Beast's Castle versus number 12 Halloween Town. Not from Halloween Town, but from Nightmare Before Christmas. Beast's Castle. Yeah, this one I thought was like a super easy matchup for me, but now I'm not so sure. Oh. Uh, something I really like about Beast's Castle is it is a physical representation of the theme of Beauty and the Beast. Uh, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. We got to eat at the Be Our Guest restaurant when we were in Florida, and we sort of were able to walk around that space Essentially, there are parts of the castle that are very dark and mm -hmm. ugly and destroyed by Beast himself, <laughs> but you open up a window and you let the light in and wow, it's actually this like wondrous library that, you know, if you just took care of it a little bit differently, it's the place you want to be. Or the Beast, the Beast invented rage rooms. <laughs> He was the 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 first person to say, I'm going to dedicate an entire room to me just absolutely destroying things in. Yeah, the real reason he was mad that Belle came in there is because she didn't pay the 15 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there's also obviously like the grand ballroom. There's there's always this um, sort of like dark cloud over Beast's castle, but you put it underneath that glass dome and it's like this blue sky that sort of lights up the area in a very moody and romantic way. It's a, it's a large estate and you sort of see it transform from this scary um, like house on the hill style location at the beginning of the movie to mm -hmm. this you know grand chateau at the end of the movie that you see all of our characters that we've come to sort of love over the course of the movie defend their turf. Uh, and we're really rooting for them to um, save the castle from Gaston and his cronies. Right. Halloween Town. I really want, and I will, I want to put this in pen. I want to put it in ink. Want to do a bracket this Halloween that is best Halloween Town resident. Hell yeah, it's a good one. Yep. Uh, Halloween Town is such an important part of Nightmare Before Christmas because it is the foundation that all of the great characters in that movie must stand upon. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's how these weird, quirky, unrealistic, goofy characters make sense to us. And for that, I just, I absolutely love it. The movie follows the, what is he, a, he's not the mayor. He's just like a, just the richest guy in like, what Yeah, is, he, the most what popular Jack, what, dude in town. Like, he's just like a Chad. He's just Chad Skellington. Yeah. 
Yeah, and and for a stop motion movie, we get to see so much of this place. We get to go to the graveyard and see the little the little tr- the little mountain with the little squirrely squirrely mm-hmm. peak on it that he stands on top of. You get to see Dr. Fekelstein's weird-shaped house. You get to see the town hall. You get to see Jack's house. You feel like you know the space really well. And you get to see the difference between Halloween Town and a different holiday town. Like, yeah. you see Christmas, Christmas Town? Christmasville? Christmas Town. It's just called Christmas Town. Yeah. Uh, and, and that element of comparison makes us be able to sort of like understand Halloween town even better. It's got a song all about it. <laughs> yeah, It's got its own. They wake up every morning and they sing that. Um, yeah, I, I think I'm going to go with Halloween town. I think, yeah, I think I'm going to go with another upset here. I just think the, the characters are such a good part of nightmare before Christmas. And uh, I have to give Halloween town the credit for that. Yeah, it's definitely Halloween Town in this matchup. The Beast Castle uh, unfortunately falls to the wayside because we've encountered every other castle story that we could have ever gotten in the previous 80 years of the company existing. And by the time we get to Beauty and the Beast, it is established that these castles are going to look a certain way, the insides are going to look a certain way, to where they really do fall to the background. There's nothing really significant about the dining room. There's nothing really significant about Bell's room. There's some significance around like the library, and that's really fun to see. But even then, we don't get a ton of detail about it. We get a bunch of just a ton of books that all just kind of look the same, you know? So the setting is important for the story, for sure, because it is the place in which Bell is imprisoned. And if it was just all like the West Wing, then maybe she would not want to stay as much, right? <laughs> like the part, the fact that there was a glimmer of hope, part of this castle is actually not too bad, might mean that the part of the beast might not be that bad. So I think that that's really important for that story, but it's not something that I'm really invested in. I'm invested in the character stories. I'm not really paying attention to the setting of the castle itself. In fact, I'm getting a little bit bored of it. What I'm not getting bored of is a place like Halloween Town, where you're, the unexpected is always going to happen. That little hook, that's probably a bat. You just don't know. That <laughs> hill, oops, alive. Like It is just something that you want to explore over and over again. Every time you watch that film, you're finding new things about Halloween Town. Uh, so I like it better than Beast Castle. I think it's the better setting. So I'm going to agree with you. Hmm. Marissa, would you have done the same? I don't know because I do. Beauty and the Beast is obviously my favorite Disney movie. I know. But I I didn't have like such a love for Nightmare Before Christmas until like maybe a few years ago. I think I just needed to be a little older in order to actually appreciate it. Because mm-hmm. when I was younger, I was like, what the heck is this? <laughs> so, but obviously I got older, rewatched it just like Chris did his rewatch of Alice in Wonderland. But obviously I had a more successful, positive um, outcome of nightmare for christmas but i don't know what i would have done that one that's definitely another one that it would have been very tough for me but your uh first watch of nightmare before christmas i think was the world's first watch of nightmare before christmas where they're all like 
we don't really get it. And then it took another like 10 years before it took off. So uh, totally understandable. For sure. Let's hop over to the other side of the bracket here where we're going to talk about the number two Neverland from Peter Pan versus the number 15 Atahalan from Frozen 2. Atahalan, I've watched Frozen 2 maybe two times. Maybe two times. Uh, so in revisiting Atahalan and really remembering not only just like where it is in the in the mental map of the frozen universe, but also like what it represented, uh, I forgot how important it truly was to that story. You know, you got Atahalan, which is this mystical river that has now frozen is this massive glacier, uh, but it holds all of the answers of the past. It holds all of the memories. Uh, I think... Olaf in it says something about the funny thing about water is that it never forgets or something like that. I don't know what his line is. And Elsa is able to traverse it. It is located apparently in like the Black Sea, apparently. Uh, And here is Elsa finding the answers to like, what is her calling? What is calling to her? What is her purpose? And and the glacier walls are, are revealing that to her. Unfortunately for me, because it is frozen too, and I like I said, I didn't really watch it many times uh it is hard for me to remember quite every detail of Atahalan but I do remember her going into uh the glacier walls and being kind of that open glacier space and the only real significant thing that I ever got out of that was that they tried to do the little let it go joke where she is also tired of that song yeah <laughs> and me being like okay hate that <laughs> that neverland uh and neverland is essentially like it's like wonderland where it's this place that like exists but doesn't really exist things don't need to have any logic to it because it is an island in the sky (laughs) essentially hidden next to a star uh and you've got mermaids you've got indigenous people You've got pirates like it is a a small child's adventure kingdom. And I think that that was really the the 50s for a lot of kids. You have the kind of Westerns on television. You've got people wanting to explore the worlds of Africa, right? Like all this adventure is happening. And so you have the visual representation of that in Peter Pan. And does it translate to now? Well, I, I think it kind of does. You have a film like Peter Pan and Wendy that comes out last year that allows us to visit a Neverland that maybe isn't so racist and that still sparks our imagination of like, what if what if there was no growing up? What if there was the danger of pirates, but the kids always come out on the end? And Neverland provides that. It's a, a place of no specific terrain, and yet all of the terrains at once. It is a place that is familiar, but also a little bit mystical. I really like that setting because it allows those characters to play. It allows them to be free. It allows the story to take a shape in any real, real way that it wants to, similar to my argument about Wonderland. I also like how iconic it is. Neverland is, a, is not just a place. It's really a state of mind. It is how do you kind of exist in your real world while also relying on your inner child to still be there at the end of the day. So I like Neverland a lot. I'm going to go with it uh, hmm. over out to Holland. That's mostly of my Frozen 2 not having seen it anytime recently bias. Uh, but I, I like that classic Disney setting. 
Um, well, let me pull uh, Kyle in the style of Pirates of the Caribbean, and let Here me do let me do a brief little Frozen lore check. Okay, please. It took me a very very long time to figure out Atahalan. Um and it all relies on your understanding of one thing, the water cycle. <laughs> right. The water cycle, for those of you that failed fourth grade, <laughs> rain falls down, rain goes into the ocean, heat evaporates, water goes into clouds and falls down as rain again. Yep. So the idea is that water has memory because it, is, it has gone through the, the water cycle for forever. And there is a place called Atahalan where the water in this part of the country flows to. Right. Elsa, sure, yes. as a magic user, can control water. Yes. Generally in the form of snow and ice, but that's just another form of water. So she goes to Atahalan, this water storage area essentially, and she, using her powers, she can see what the water has seen. Hmm. So on the walls of the interior ice of Atahalan are scenes from Frozen 1. <laughs> <laughs> and scenes from earlier in Frozen 2 even. And guess what? Atahalan, big fan of Frozen 1. <laughs> it loves Frozen 1. <laughs> there is one rule to Atahalan. If you go too deep into the history of the water, you'll get stuck there, mm. which ultimately is sort of like a metaphor for just how we think about the past. Don't dwell on it or else it'll eat you up. Sure. Uh, but that's basically what Atahalan is. Uh, very difficult because on the surface, you're like, did Elsa become God? Right. Yeah. <laughs> how come she can see scenes from Frozen 1 now? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it makes sense when you consider her powers and what Atahalan actually is. So right, yes. throughout the movie, they're framing it as like, it's this place that holds the truth. Uh, and and you're sort of like, what? Like, why is the truth in a place? Like, shouldn't it be like, oh, I found the truth inside me this whole time. Mm-hmm. But it was just a way for her to go on an adventure, like physically. Right. But anyways, the truth was inside of her this whole time. She just had <laughs> to see it reflected in the icebergs. All right. Well, there you go. Um, all of that being said, very comparable to Neverland. Because yeah. Neverland, much like Atahalan, in a way, is a state of mind, perceivable only by those who know where it is and know how to access it. Mm-hmm. We get to know Neverland a lot better than we get to know Atahalan, and Neverland has much more character to it, literally and figuratively. I just don't know that I love the character that exists <laughs> in Neverland. Um, I don't like Peter Pan. Captain Hook's kind of a weenie hut junior. Sure. The Lost Boys are whack. <laughs> oh, no. Um, Tinkerbell's literally the only person I like. In this movie. <laughs> and I like to think that she does not consider herself a resident of Neverland. No, she could never get tied down like that. She's a political refugee from Yeah, Neverland. exactly. I think I'm going to go with Atahalan. I think I'm going right. to stand Frozen 2 and move that one on. So we're going to yeah. throw this one to Marissa. 
I loved your explanation of Autolin. That was magnificent. Thank you. It's It took me many years and many Frozen 2 watchings to realize what was happening. <laughs> I it, And it's funny when you were talking about Peter Pan and Neverland, just because I am the exact opposite. I don't like Tinkerbell, and I like oh. everything else. <laughs> That's my girl. Like, oh, no. <laughs> I think that she's a pain in the butt, but that's okay. <laughs> but I mean, when you look at Otta Holland and you talk about the water references and Elsa finding herself in the reflection of the water and she has to see Frozen 1 in order to understand everything. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and then there's Neverland that has everything that a kid would want in an area of a playground essentially essentially like that is everything that they could ever want all in one so i i like neverland in this mat in this matchup particularly just because otta holland for people i think it's just not like it could be a lot of interpretations and a lot of understanding and order to understand it and i think with neverland it's just very straightforward very storytelling with a lot of stories within itself and that's why i'm picking neverland over out to holland it's understandable it takes a frozen degenerate like me to really know <laughs> what's happening in that movie um all right moving on to the next matchup is the number seven seed zootopia from zootopia versus number 10 the forest from bambi Interesting matchup because both of these movies generally set out to do the same thing. And that is to tell the natural order of things. Mm -hmm. Bambi starts out, he's, he's a little, little Bambi, yeah. the young prince. Mm. Uh, and he's exploring the forest and he's learning all of the things that happen there. You know, there's a flower, there's <laughs> some water, there's some ice. There's an owl. There's an owl. Uh, there's... There's a chick, bro. She's so <laughs> hot, bro. What do I do, bro? Uh, he eventually gets older. He learns about man. He learns about fires in the forest. And uh, anyways, it's definitely like a surprisingly realistic depiction of the forest. You look at a movie like Snow White, released around the same time which takes a much more sort of like enchanted take yeah. on the forest. And, and yeah. Bambi, the movie, for it being about talking animals, does a really good job trying to make it feel realistic. That's That um, happens in terms of story, but also it's it's the way that the forest is animated. They, mm -hmm. they try and make those matte paintings in the back very lifelike, uh, and they, they try not to give character to the setting. So in a lot of ways, like it's really beautiful in that way because it feels so realistic. But on the other hand, it doesn't feel super Disney because it doesn't feel super original either. Mm. Uh, the originality really just comes from the, how these characters are interacting with their setting. Yeah, sure. I mean, got to give a shout out to Little April Shower, though. I mean, come on. Um, because that's the part in the movie that really, the sequence in the movie that really tries to... Um, show off that setting i think in the best way yeah. zootopia i mean much like alice in wonderland 
the movie's called Zootopia. Like it is named after the place itself with no additional words required. Yeah. I will say it's a little bit on the nose. Um, the whole like, oh, there's uh, <laughs> two types of people and, you know, one of them is a certain way and one of them is a certain way. And only when we look past our differences can we really uh, cohabitate peacefully. Can we run through the districts of Zootopia real quick? Yeah. All I know is Tundra Town because it was you- a Jerry's Gang trivia answer. <laughs> you got Sahara Square. You got Tundra Town. You've got Little Rodentia. Mm. You've got Rainforest District. It's, it, this, w- this is what annoys me about Zootopia is that like they lean in on like being playful with the names and making it Little Rodentia. And then they'll say like Rainforest District, Nocturnal District. Like, come on. So Nocturnal District is another one. Downtown is one. Meadowlands, Canal District, Marshlands, and Outback Island. And all of these districts are very physically defined uh, with yeah. like walls and fences and um, deep chasms and valleys. And in a way, it sort of makes sense because it's Zootopia, right? That's what that's what zoos are like. They're, yes, totally. Um, it's not a safari park where everything's sort of like one environment. Everything is, this is the reptile house. This is the insect house. This is the panda exhibit. Everything is divided up in that way. So I get it. I think, I think uh, it understood the assignment, as the kids <laughs> yeah. say. <laughs> yeah. Um, but also, in that way, it doesn't really feel like a real city because obviously there are distinct like neighborhoods in cities, but they sort of blend together and they aren't. They're sometimes distinct like that, where one block to another block changes, but often not dramatically like it does in Zootopia. Ugh. It's tough. I don't, I, I just, this, this like quadrant of the bracket, I don't know is super strong in general. Mm. Mm. I think I'm going to go with Zootopia. I think I'm going to go with my gut. It takes a big swing. I don't think it misses. Um, but I, I respect the hustle that it took to dream up this environment. I'm going to go forest. And that's because for Zootopia, the setting and its little individual districts feel a little bit too much like for the gag as opposed to like for the story or to really like immerse us there. Yes, it it does put us in the story when they go to um, the rainforest district uh, to find the the leopard that lives up in the trees to see what he knows about the the smuggling of drugs or whatever. It makes for a great action action scene, falling through the rainforest, holding onto vines and stuff like that. And that would only happen in that area. But again, it's kind of just like for the gag. And then we never go back there. Like Zootopia is this vast place of like, Little Rodentia is literally a little hamster town. Like it, it's cute. It's funny. It gets you to say, yep, that's exactly how that would be. But for me, it's not a place that like I want to stay in. It's not a world that I want to stay in. Uh, something like the forest is a place that I do want to stay in. And it feels that kind of like distinct Disney attention, not just to detail, but to the artistry of it, to allow the story to inhabit it. 
Shout out Tyrus Wong, who was the background animator on that, uh, used watercolor so that he could detail the stuff in the foreground and then really kind of just let things flow in the background in this really natural looking style that allows us to be very convinced that this is a forest, but not focus past those trees. You know, you're just, everything is intimate. Everything exists only in that bubble because for Bambi, it does. He doesn't learn really about the outside world until his mom gets yacht. And then like all of a sudden the forest opens up to him. So like the setting is so important to Bambi that I think that I'm going to go with it. And I, it, it has that, that Disney touch to it that feels a little bit more, uh, I don't know, like it, longer lasting than something like Zootopia where you, we might look back on that. It's already been, God, it's already been 10 years since that film, but like, or it's about to be 10 years, but we're going to look back on that and be like, yeah, that was kind of the time. <laughs> like we were really into like commentary on, on social life and like, Oh, look, it's funny. Cause New York city has boroughs that are like designed towards a uh, certain demographics. And, and, you know, you've got all of these people living in one places. And so similar to Zootopia, like, ah, okay. Like cute, but not as timeless as something like the forest. I'm going to go with the forest. Marissa, tie break time. Okay. So here's my thing. <clears throat> um, this may be a very unpopular opinion, but I don't like Zootopia at all. Ooh. You know, I, I can't really get behind it. the storyline, especially when Kyle brought up another thing that I didn't like about it. I just, the, the names of the districts bother me just because I feel like they dedicated so much to certain ones. And then I feel like they forgot about the other ones. If you hate but hot it, animals, just, dude, just say it. It's just, it's just lazy. Anti-furry. <laughs> oh, furry. We were talking about furries the other day. <laughs> Kyle and I were. It was a very interesting conversation. It's never not when you're talking <laughs> yeah. about furries. For real, though. <laughs> For real. There it is. But I I like the forest better just because of the design aspect of it and having... I do like how that it was animals to animals comparison here, that it was one of the OG animals versus modern day animals. I think that was a fun comparison of that but if i'm gonna go with the best animated disney setting i think that the forest does take zootopia on this all right let's head on down to this next quadrant here where we've got a, a couple of kingdoms that are matched up against each other and i really like this one a lot actually we've got the number three arendelle from frozen taking on corona from tangled and these in my mind, you could throw them any single way you want, and it's going to be the same to me. This is These are two of these kind of kingdoms where it's like, yeah, I could see both characters inhabiting, both sets of characters inhabiting these spaces. And in fact, don't we for like a hot second? Doesn't uh, Rapunzel roll up to... to um, The coronation? The coronation. Yeah, that's right. So like, they, yeah, they, they know the grounds. They know where they're at. Uh, Corona is this what seems to be very vast kingdom, but the center of it is this island that has this massive castle, and around it is kind of the state, the the city center uh, of Corona. And then you have what I assume is the rest of the Corona, which is kind of the villages that are around it. So like, we have like the tower that 
uh, Rapunzel's locked up in and you have the snuggly duckling that's out on the countryside. Like that is all kind of Corona. And so it, it feels very fairy tale. This feels like a, a setting in which a fairy tale would take place. That Corona reminds me a lot of just kind of what Shrek was. Like it is just kind of all of the same spacing. You've got the countryside, you've got the lush greenness, and it all leads to the city center with this castle. And like it feels very like Disney's Disney's Shrek. When Shrek was just commentary on Disney, so we're just all back in the same place. Um so Corona as a setting does not stand out to me a ton. Uh, and it's probably because the story is just so rich and it moves so quickly that I don't really care where we are. Like Rapunzel and Flynn can go do whatever they want to do in any sort of setting. And it's going to be the same story to me, especially when I can't really even put my finger on Corona, the the city center itself. Like I have very, uh, I, I can like picture little moments of it. I can see her like getting into town for that first time and like, She's like dancing around with the kids as she finally finds other people that are like nice. <laughs> um, but for for whatever reason, it kind of feels like the off the shelf fairy tale setting. Arendelle starts to suffer from that a little bit, too. But what I do like about Arendelle is that you really do feel that kind of Nordic culture out of it. You, you feel the influences. You feel like there's a history to that town uh, that you explore further and further as you watch these films, especially in like Frozen 2, where the film starts out in like the fall of Arendelle. So you get a little bit of a different view of that sort of setting as opposed to in Frozen, which is literally just snowy the entire time and then Elsa runs away from it. Uh, So in this matchup of like these two kingdoms, I think I'm going to go with Arendelle. (laughs) It's just one that feels a little bit more memorable to me. It's one that plays a little bit more importance to the story itself. Corona is not so much. We care about Rapunzel. We want her to 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 see the the lanterns float away, and then it does, and chaos happens. Uh, I'm gonna go with Arendelle. I don't really know that the generic elements that you're talking about are quite as offensive to me, just because we are talking about best animated Disney setting, sure. and part of those generic elements like are what makes a Disney setting a Disney setting. Sure. Um, especially in a movie like Tangled because ultimately what that movie is about is the cutting of the hair. Like that whole movie is just one prequel to the moment when <laughs> she cuts her hair off or who cuts his, who does she cut her own hair off or does Flynn cut Flynn, her hair? Flynn, Flynn cuts her cuts hair it off. with the glass. Right. So, um, Corona being this very like stereotypical kingdom from a fairy tale, it's all bait. It's all bait. Yeah. To yeah. get you to be more shocked at that last moment in that movie. <laughs> it works. It works. You mentioned the scene where Rapunzel sort of like rolls into town. Uh, that is the kingdom dance song, mm, which is yes. like a super deep cut underrated Disney song that like a lot of people stand for yeah it's, it's basically like a TikTok just, trending song isn't it yeah it's just like a little fiddle type thing <laughs> yeah. there's no words to it but rapunzel's dancing around uh, i have questions about oh. this scene first of all your girl's barefoot yeah and gross you do not want to be barefoot in a city first not of all. at that time not at that time period either so you know what they're throwing out those windows mm, you know that bucket that that, <laughs> yeah. that that bucket's getting thrown out the front door <laughs> 
Um, yeah, she sees the girls like braiding her hair, braiding hair, braiding their hair, not her hair, just their hair. Uh, and then they braid her hair and they just like walk away. Like, that's it. Like, no tip, no tip, (laughs) no nothing. No, thanks. Then Rapunzel looks over at this like portrait of the king and the queen holding baby Rapunzel. And people are like putting offering or like offering flowers to it. And very conveniently, there's a baby that also says, I'm, I'm putting a flower down to the safe return of the princess. Wow, <laughs> convenient that you heard that so we could understand exactly what was happening. Uh, but jokes aside, clearly meant to represent that like the people love this particular royal family. People love that baby. Which is awesome for Rapunzel, but for me as like an adult viewer of the movie, it's a moment for me where I'm like, where, where are the stakes really? Mm. Uh, because Rapunzel has been lost for a very long time, evidently an only child. Uh, where is the overthrow attempt coming from that should be <laughs> talked about? Like, there are no stakes. There is no timeliness that needs to, like, we need to get Rapunzel back or else the kingdom will be lost forever, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Like, I don't know that it needs, the movie needs that extra element for the movie to be good, but for Corona to feel more realistic, I sort of think that the political backdrop sort of matters. Yeah, sure. Of course, I have to mention (laughs) the lantern scene. Yeah. I see the light. My favorite Disney song, an annual tradition that happens in Corona where they release the lanterns into the sky and they inevitably fall all around the water that surrounds the kingdom. And, we get the beautiful song with uh, mm-hmm. Flynn and Rapunzel. And so visually, it just like that is always what I'm going to think of when I think of uh, Corona. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, I really love both of these settings, but I think I'm with you in moving Arendelle on. And it, it has to do with just the way we understand the people of Arendelle just a little bit better. Uh, we feel that sort of sense of confusion when Elsa, like, She's our queen, but also, what's she doing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you know, there's some urgency with the natural disaster stuff as well. So it just it's a space that feels a little bit more lived in. So I'm with you. I'm moving Arendelle along. Marissa, do you agree with that one? I know you're a big Tangled TV series fan, so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm just a big Tangled. I'm a, I love Frozen too. don't get me wrong. But I was scared if you guys were going to go opposites there, just because I didn't know. <laughs> what I was going to do. I was just going to panic and just pick one. But I do think it's interesting. Like when you put Arendelle and Corona together, Corona was hello. Yes. You want to put your two cents. I know. (laughs) But Corona mother Gothel was trying to keep Rapunzel away from Corona, but the parents were trying to keep Elsa in Arendelle. So it was just like polar opposites of each other. And they're both European area based settings so yeah i'm like it's the battle of the european princesses here and yeah. i don't know what to do and plus fantasy springs in tokyo is opening up this whole area that's going to have frozen and tangled and neverland and then there's going to be a hotel and i was like this is literally 
Tokyo. <laughs> yeah. like, the I, I come was to like, life. don't make me pick this. So I'm glad that you guys picked for me. Thank goodness. <laughs> just wait until Frozen 3 because it's going to be a Tangled Frozen meetup film. I just, I, if I know it. If it's not, I will riot. <laughs> we riot at dawn. Yeah. All right, the last matchup of round one is the number six seed Sugar Rush from Wreck-It Ralph versus number 11, Casa, Casa Madrigal from Casa. <laughs> Casa Madrigal. Casa Madrigal from Encanto. Um, I love I, another matchup where I love both of these. Yeah. The Casa Madrigal is great because it's a character. Like, it, it has life it has personality you see the way that mirabelle specifically interacts with the house throughout the movie and for just being basically like moving pieces of furniture and parts of the house you really feel that like you know what it's trying to say or you know Mm -hmm. the tone that it's trying to communicate in and i think that's like a really really interesting unique thing that i don't know that any other disney movie does yeah the visuals incredible Love the colors. Love the whole, like, each kid has its own, has their own door thing that, like, glow with their powers. And behind each one is, like, not a room, but a whole different sort of world. Um, One of, it's it's got that quality that just makes your imagination in your brain work a little bit. Like, oh, yeah. That's pretty yeah. cool. Like, what would be behind my door if I lived in my yeah. house? Yeah, yeah. It would just be Tiki Toms in Walnut yeah. Creek, California. <laughs> I just live in Chater Sam's. It's crazy. Um, Sugar Rush, though, is great because much like Halloween Town, there are rules in Sugar Rush. Sugar Rush lives by a different set of physics. Uh, and they are very, very well defined. There are rituals and routines that happen in Sugar Rush that are called out specifically. There are tons of candy jokes, and the movie goes to great lengths to make sure that this setting is is well developed in a way that's comedic and realistic and enjoyable. Like the yeah. whole, the whole point of it is that like, oh, I just want to eat that. You know, like it's a, it's the modern day Willy Wonka chocolate factory. Actually, right. I better not say that because there is a modern Willy Wonka <laughs> chocolate factory. Missed it. Don't know so if it was I. good or not, but no apparently idea. it made like $600 billion or something. What? That's 600 crazy. billion. That's a lot. 600 million. That, yeah. Maybe that. <laughs> uh, there's Amazon and then there's the Timothy Chalamet. <laughs> <Wonka> <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to go with Sugar Rush. I think Wreck-It Ralph has really slept on, and I, I, I think the video game as a living place where there's some agency in it is is really a fun concept to explore. I'm going to go with Casa Madrigal because I've, I never completely bought into Sugar Rush. Hmm. Wreck-It Ralph is a really fun movie, but it feels stuck in 2012. Sugar Rush, the game, is obviously a reference to Candy Crush, which was a very popular game at that time. Was it a racing one? No, but it's a candy-related mobile game. You have this racing game, very similar to like Mario Kart. Uh, that is, that's timeless. We'll probably see Mario Kart forever. Uh, so that, that part is fine. But then there's all of these references within Sugar Rush itself, particularly 
the um the like soda fountain mountain with the Mentos uh mm-hmm. stalactites, whatever one goes down and falls into the coke that then spurts up like a big volcanic volcanic eruption. That tell me something that is more 2010, 11, and 12 than us putting Mentos into Coca-Cola bottles. Like that is a time capsule of a reference. Is it necessary to understand what is happening in that scene? Probably not. Like you could watch it in 20 years and take it for what it is, but it just hits that part of my brain. And that is the issue with Wreck-It Ralph itself because you get Wreck-It Ralph 2, Ralph Breaks the Internet. And it's just like, oh, we, we are not going to be able to leave this this one moment in time. And that's what Sugar Rush really feels to me. Casa Madre, y'all, I really like because one, Chris, you brought it up. The character within the setting, I really enjoy out of this setting. Uh, I like the rooms. I like that the rooms stand for nurture. They are they are the safe spaces. All of our characters hate their lives. <laughs> they are dealing with some with some, <laughs> but in their rooms are the places where they can be themselves. They can experience themselves. They can feel safe and and loved. And I think that is what the house itself represents is this place of love it was built as a fortress of love for the wrong reasons but the house gets what it needs to it's supposed to do and it's a place that i want to explore marissa you're gonna end this episode by breaking a tie this is another one that i was scared of because (laughs) i love both of i love both of these movies too and it I think what I have a problem with, with specifically just Casa Madrigal, is that it's just the house particularly. And I just feel like I need like a little more beyond that for best animated Disney setting Mm. is that it it, like this is just specifically the house that all that the family lives in. And I feel like if it just expanded a little bit more and included the whole area that they lived in i feel like i could have leaned more that way but i think that i am gonna go with sugar rush this round just because it has a little more depth for me of being very impressive with what they were able to create within this universe of wreck it ralph so i am going with sugar rush on this and that caps off the elite eight we've done it And we'll talk about it next time. It's going to be the number one Wonderland taking on number nine, New Orleans. Number 13, the Cave of Wonders taking on number 12, Halloween Town. Number two, Neverland taking on number 10, The Forest. Number three, Arendelle taking on number six, Sugar Rush. This might be one of my favorite Elite Eights that we've had in a very long time. These are going to be some fun discussions next time. Marissa, thank you so much for breaking some very important ties here in part one. We can't wait to have you do the same thing in part two. Thank you guys for having me. All right, everyone, you know how to reach us. If you have something to say about these Disney settings, is there one that holds a special place in your heart? Email us at mousemadnesspodcast at gmail.com or hit us up on social media. All of our channels are linked in the description of this podcast. If you'd like to support us on Patreon, you can head over to patreon.com slash mousemadness and join us at the $5 level by becoming a member of Jerry's Gang. Folks, we will see you in the next one. That's why coffee is for grown-ups. <laughs> <laughs>